this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath as sri lanka endures its worst ever economic crisis the international monetary fund the imf has just concluded a 10 day visit to the island nation the purpose of the visit was to study the situation and hold talks with lankan government officials regarding some kind of relief package but help from the imf usually comes with conditions attached and they are not always what the recipient likes so what kind of help is sri lanka likely to get from the imf what is life like for ordinary people on the island nation right now and how is the rajapaksa clan still holding on to power despite the widespread misery and in the face of such fears and sustained protests we look for answers to these questions and more in this episode of the focus podcast and our guest today is meera shrinivasan the hindus sri lanka correspondent meera thank you so much for joining us thank you sampath uh, meera to start with can you tell us a little bit about how bad life is in sri lanka right now is it only the poor and the working classes who are badly affected or even the elites have to put up with things like 10 hour power outages and stand in long lines for essentials sure so sampat uh, it's hard to find anyone who has not been affected by this crisis especially its current phase of acute fuel and cooking gas shortages so new fuel shipments are not expected until july 22nd according to an aid of the prime minister so you see long queues of parked vehicles on the roads for days together hoping to get a token it's a new system they've introduced at the petrol shed and uh, it's military managed so people are supposed to get a token and later expect a call where they can go and get petrol so you see affluent people posting on social media about taking the bus or train after many years or perhaps for the first time or cycling to work and so on you also hear of many urban families switching to firewood stoves if they have some open space or say opt for induction stoves and so on the power cuts however are not as bad now because the rains in april and may i think have boosted hydropower generation so the duration of power cuts is you know uh, maybe a couple of hours now compared to up to 13 hours a couple of months ago so that said the situation is very much like what was said during covid right that we're all in this together when in reality some of us are way more affected than others so you asked about the poor and working people undoubtedly they are the worst affected and are leading very very precarious lives at the moment the un recently said that about 5. million women children and men that's roughly a fifth of sri lanka's population are in need of immediate life saving assistance particularly affected are garment workers the estate workers who are already agitating against low wages and exploitative working conditions of course war affected families in the north the urban poor daily wage workers and so on apart from the shortages even those items available in the market are really out of reach for many you know the colombo consumer price index increased to 54.6 in june and i believe anything over 54 is considered hyperinflation by mainstream economists and food inflation rose to 80.1% in june so we are talking of 
very very basic staple items like rice dal milk powder bread and you know for example something as basic to sri lankan cuisine as chili powder now cost 700 sri lankan rupees for just 250 grams to give you an idea so daily wage workers tend to earn between 600 and 1500 rupees a day then you can imagine the kind of pressure they are under obviously they are skipping meals many families are surviving barely on one meal and uh, from my recent reporting it was very clear that many families urgently need regular well thought out assistance by way of food items or cash something of course some people prefer cash they want to have the choice of you know prioritizing their expenses others say no give us food items because if you give us cash what we can buy for that amount this month won't be you know uh, possible the next month so it's it's really this sort of pressure for ordinary people and that's where things are sampad right how are the government uh, officials those who go to government offices and have to be there for essential services and supplies and so on how are they managing because i read somewhere that you know government has uh, encouraged people to work from home uh, to avoid travel and use of fuel etc yes in a way this is a, you know a virtual lockdown in sri lanka the way we had it during covid because most government offices are you know partially functional employees have been given work from home option and encouraged to do so and otherwise it's virtually impossible for people to get to work because if you look at buses in colombo today firstly the fleet has shrunk rapidly you don't see as many public buses on the road because even they don't have fuel similarly trains train workers were striking work until yesterday so that service was also hit and then three wheelers auto rickshaws don't have fuel so it's just impossible for even government officials to get to work which means that they are forced to work from home and most government services can't be offered by individual employees from where they are because they may not have the same sort of power and internet uh, supply so it's it's really um, governance itself coming to a near standstill at some level of course you know it seems all right because from the outside it would seem like sri lanka is still functioning at some sense these you know uh, high level delegations are coming and the government is putting out statements but at a very everyday level things are quite grim right so you spoke about uh, just now this high level delegation and then so we've had this imf uh, visit i think they came on june 20th and they were there, there for 10 days so can you talk a little bit about what exactly was this visit about and uh, there was also talk of an extended fund facility or eff what is this eff how does it work is this going to solve this problem over a longer period or is it a temporary bandaid for the sri lankan economy so the understanding here is that such an extended fund facility which will likely total 3 or 4 billion at most will provide some urgent relief to sri lanka so any ff combined with a debt restructure program and some structural reform will put sri lanka on the path of recovery is the belief an imf team delegation as you said was uh, recently in sri lanka concluded its visit just a few days ago the team said it made significant progress in its discussion with the sri lankan government and that staff level agreement on the eff would be reached in the near term so that is a bit ambiguous because near term could even mean months because typically that's how long imf agreements are negotiated over 
So the delegation statement also said that its objectives in a new program would be to restore macroeconomic stability and debt sustainability while protecting the poor and vulnerable, safeguarding financial stability and stepping up structural reforms to address corruption vulnerabilities and unlock Sri Lanka's growth potential. So I just read out from their statement. And Sri Lanka's public debt has also been unsustainable according to this IMF delegation in its assessment. And it's also saying that the executive board of the IMF would approve this EFF based on adequate financing assurances from Sri Lanka's creditors that debt sustainability will be restored. Now, what does that mean? Sri Lanka has opted for a preemptive default, right, on all its foreign loans amounting to about 50 billion. Colombo has hired financial and legal advisors, uh, you know, Lazard and Clifford Chance to help the government restructure its debt. So the IMF would watch if creditors find Colombo's debt restructure attempt agreeable and good enough to make Sri Lanka credit worthy again. As we know, the largest chunk or about 40% of Sri Lanka's foreign debt is owed to international financial market where Sri Lanka has borrowed heavily through sovereign bonds, especially in the last 15 years. So in a sense, it's, you know, more an ISD debt trap in Sri Lanka than a Chinese debt trap that many Western and Indian media tend to invoke because Chinese debt makes up about 10% of the total borrowings and Japan is another top bilateral lender. India has also emerged an important lender this year, extending about 3.5 billion. So you have the market creditors or bondholders on the one hand, multilateral lenders like World Bank, Asia Development Bank, then bilateral lenders that Colombo must negotiate with. And it's not going to be easy. Each of these lenders come with different, you know, ideologies, different uh, logic, and, uh, you know, different approaches to credit itself. So it's definitely going to be quite complicated. And reports say that more than 30 bondholders have formed a group to negotiate with Sri Lanka. And one of them has reportedly sued the island in a US court demanding payment. So the IMF is basically saying that its own program is contingent on all these diverse creditors feeling confident of Sri Lanka's recovery. And that's really how complex this is going to be. What does this really mean? So IMF's uh, condition is that it, everybody should be reasonably assured, everybody meaning all the creditors should be reasonably assured that the Sri Lankan economy is on the mend. So what does it really mean in terms of what the government has to do? Like, what do they have to do? Is it, is it something which is in their power? I mean, the creditors can demand whatever uh, they feel like. Like, what is the government capable of doing? And does it really match with what the expectations from the IMF and the creditors are? Yes. So that is why, uh, you know, the government has hired these experts, legal financial experts, to advise the government on these negotiations. So, um, you know, Sri Lanka essentially has to hold... Uh, negotiations with each of these categories of creditors. For example, they speak to bondholders and say, okay, we'll take another three years to repay your loans. And they tell China, we need a five-year moratorium. They tell India something like that. So they have to basically figure out what is agreeable to each of these creditors and collectively also. And that IMF says would be important for its executive board to approve an extended fund facility. Right, that okay, creditors have the confidence that Sri Lanka will do the right thing in terms of recovery and then, you know, probably sort of give some debt relief 
I don't know if waivers are possible in this scenario, but at least a moratorium. So then Sri Lanka will say, okay, these are the structural reforms we are doing in our country. And this is what we've negotiated with our lenders. And therefore we, you know, qualify for your EFF. That's the kind of case Sri Lanka must make. And uh, as you said, uh, this could come with conditions. Right. And now speaking of uh, Sri Lanka going to the IMF once again, I think this is, I think the 16th, 17th or the 18th time since independence uh, that uh, Sri Lanka has gone to the IMF uh, asking for money. So why does this keep happening? I mean, hasn't it not learned anything from the past or is there some fundamental structural flaw in the economy or the governance of the 16, 17 times in a matter of 70 years is a lot, isn't it? Indeed, yeah, this I think would be the 70th IMF program in Sri Lanka. And I'd like to also point our listeners to a piece that Professor R. Ramkumar wrote for us in March this year, analyzing Sri Lanka's engagement with the IMF over all these years and the historical imbalances in the country's economic structure. And I mean, again, when IMF comes in with the program, it will likely impose conditions, including austerity measures, say privatizing state-owned enterprises known to be loss-making, then they will push for market pricing of essentials. So um, some time ago, I interviewed the Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Ranil Vikramasinghe, and asked him if Sri Lanka has enough of a bargaining power or agency to negotiate a program that would be most suitable for its challenges. So he said it's different from earlier times, and it wasn't very clear what he meant by that. But he said Sri Lanka will have the bargaining power if it does well in its assessment of the situation and takes, you know, specific action. So basically, he was optimistic, but we won't know until the program is finalized. Again, yesterday, President Rajapaksa said in a tweet that he had an extensive Zoom discussion with uh, former Central Bank Governor Dr. Indrajit Kumaraswamy and then renowned uh, economist Professor Shanta Devarajan and former IMF Director Shamini Kure, Dr. Shamini Kure. So on the future of Sri Lanka's IMF course. But, uh, okay, he appointed these three experts as his advisors. But we have to remember that given the power dynamic between the IMF and the defaulting or bankrupt Sri Lanka, that's very reliant on the fund at the moment. And then also the history of IMF interventions world over. It's not very difficult to guess who will have the final say. And let's, uh, as you rightly said, you know, we must remember this is not the first time Sri Lanka has gone to the IMF. So as you asked about, you know, what is, whether there's a fundamental flaw. So much of this current crisis is attributed to misgovernance of the Rajapaksa regime, corruption, questionable choices, right? In big ticket infrastructure, public investment and so on. But more specifically, people blame the government's, uh, Rajapaksa government's sweeping tax cuts in 2019 and the ill-advised chemical fertilizer ban last year. Both have proven quite costly. So although the Gotabaya Rajapaksa government is, I think, fairly blamed for failing to arrest this rapid decline of the economy, I think many agree that the administration did not create this crisis. So different governments before them have resorted to indiscriminate borrowings, including in the money market, accumulating debt that was very clearly unsustainable. So Sri Lanka liberalized its economy in 1977, almost half a century ago, and it was the first country in the region to do so. But we must ask what happened to the country's economy in all these years? Why has Sri Lanka been importing more than it has been exporting? Did domestic production grow? Was Sri Lanka able to add value to what was produced locally and diversify its exports? 
Now, for decades, Sri Lanka has relied only on tea, garments, spices to a smaller extent, tourism and worker remittances for foreign exchange. And then we also have to ask in all these years of Sri Lanka's liberalized uh, journey, economic journey, what about income distribution? So data clearly shows inequality deepening in these years. The Gini coefficient, I think, was around 0.35 in, in the mid-70s before liberalization, and it has worsened and remained around 0.4 for decades, and it was 0.45 in 2019, which all point to a big income gap for most part of this liberalized uh, history. So I don't think corruption alone can explain Sri Lanka's uh, current predicament. So fundamentally, economic choices and, uh, you know, uh, how the economy was made to function, you know, with these choices is uh, something we have to think about. Also, Sampad, the political course of the country is not irrelevant to its economic reality, isn't it? Uh, the island has seen two armed insurrections of the GDP in the Sinhala majority south in the 70s and 80s. And then, of course, the three-decade devastating civil war between the armed forces and LTT, which broke out owing to the state's uh, violent structural discrimination of the Tamil minority. Speaking of the political side of the whole thing, how is President uh, Rajapaksha weathering the political discontent when there's so much of protest, so much of misery? How is he still clinging on to power even now? I think he's continuing with uh, striking resolve. In an interview to Bloomberg last month, he has vowed to finish the remaining two years of his office, which means that he continues to disregard agitating citizens' chief demand that he step down. I mean, even today, uh, at some level, the protests may seem dispirited due to various reasons, but they are still asking for Gota to go home in their slogan. And uh, there were some changes in terms of uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa's resignation after the May 9th violence, but he continues in parliament, as does his older brother Chamal Rajapaksa and son Namal Rajapaksa, they're all in parliament. Of course, uh, Basil Rajapaksa, finance minister, resigned from parliament, and he's said to be working on mobilizing political support on the ground already. He's, in fact, uh, the party's ruling party's chief architect in that sense. There has been a new cabinet with many old faces, a few new additions, including a casino magnet who is now investments promotion minister. So for all practical purposes, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, extremely unpopular, having no credibility in public eye is still in office. Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe, again, who didn't have an electoral mandate, he came into parliament uh, through the national list, which is from a proportion of votes. He also doesn't have support in parliament, doesn't seem to have too much support of the ruling party, and many protesting people accuse him of being there just to protect the Rajapaksa. So you have a government that has no credibility, but is still functioning. Right. And we also read a little bit about uh, this 22nd Amendment Bill, which is supposed to curtail the president's executive powers. And in one way, we have also uh, seen lots of analysis saying that if the president's uh, abuse of his uh, executive powers, which are in excess, that have reportedly contributed to the current crisis. So this so-called curtailment of his powers through this 22nd Amendment Bill, what has been the response of the public and the opposition to this move? Right. Though, you know, mass protests have mainly asked for the resignation of the president. As you said, you know, many have pointed to the executive presidency system itself 
as the fundamental problem that led to all this, that you had this all-powerful president who was allowed to take these decisions. So, um, you know, it's very interesting in Sri Lanka, almost all presidents have promised to do away with executive presidency in their election campaign, passionately promised to abolish executive presidency, but somehow unfailingly forgotten the pledge just after being elected to office. So this executive presidency is something that lingers as a very, very important uh, question. And in this context, the government recently gazetted the 22nd Amendment Bill that you mentioned, pitching it as some sort of political reform. Except, uh, you know, constitutional experts and government critics say that it hardly clips executive powers or empowers parliament. And they've called it window dressing that's aimed at showing the world that the government is willing to bring about change, but it actually lacks any substance or meat. And uh, parallelly, a presidential panel recently submitted its recommendations to the government on implementing one country, one law, a promise of the Rajapaksa party. The panel itself is headed by this controversial, divisive Buddhist monk who was earlier convicted for contempt of court and so on, and he received a presidential pardon. So this initiative too is a matter of concern for democracy advocates and activists. So it's, it's quite politically tricky uh, in terms of what the government might be able to get through because of its majority in parliament. So there is resistance to all these moves. Right. Speaking of resistance, and you spoke earlier about protests still going on, even though it's somewhat subdued fashion compared to earlier. Has there been any effort by the opposition parties to build on these protests, develop some kind of an organized political campaign? Because I think the larger objective of possibly the majority of the protesters is to see a change in the regime in power. And are the opposition parties really working on it or are they too fragmented and nothing much is happening? So as for the political opposition, whether it's the main opposition or any other opposition party, none has yet won the confidence of protesters as a credible political alternative. So in terms of protest itself, as you said, it's subdued. It's, it seems dispirited in terms of size and uh, volume of the chant, uh, you know, if that's something to go by. But there are small groups still persisting with resolve at Colombo Seafront at different uh, areas, braving, you know, sometimes intimidation. Recently, we saw at Fort where Sri Lanka and Australia are playing a test match, protesters surrounded the ramparts with anti-government slogans and they were intimidated by uniformed military men. There were videos of this circulating, which many raised concern over. And again, this, you know, in a way is also connected to economic questions because the military budget is still disproportionately high in Sri Lanka 10 years after the civil war ended. And the military is distributing fuel, trying to curtail protests. So that is another dimension of this. But again, coming back to your point on the opposition, you know, some of the slogans coming out of the current uh, agitations are asking for all 225 parliamentarians to resign. They want a political overhaul, a system change. So the protests have an inherent challenge, though, that they include very diverse actors, voices and demands and not always converging. Right. So and they don't have a political vehicle they trust through which they can challenge this outrage for, say, electoral or systemic change. So that's quite a challenge. Right. Uh, we're running out of time. So one final question. Uh, let's say Sri Lanka gets a decent relief package from the IMF. What are the chances that the country will actually be able to pull itself out of this crisis 
under the same clan, the same regime that presided over the descent into this mess in the first place. Like you just use the word window dressing to refer to sort of a political reform that they have uh, proposed, the 22nd Amendment too. So what extent can Sri Lanka really hope for actual reforms that can change its economic uh, trajectory, so to speak, and not just window dressing? Yes, if you ask me, Sampath, my view is that this government and all its uh, chief actors lack any credibility in the citizens' uh, point of view. So I don't know how such a government will be able to implement measures, uh, especially when measures will only get tougher as an IMF program sets in, right? So that is one thing, absolute trust and credibility deficit in the ruling government. And the other is, yes, the clan itself has a very problematic image, given its history politically, uh, its economic choices and so on. But uh, the Rajapaksas have been at the helm, say, from 2005 to 14, and now from 2019. That's about 12 years in all. So we're also speaking of a structural problem that uh, spans longer. Yes, the Rajapaksas are central to this crisis and central to this economic uh, descent and crash. But also to uh, you know, uh, shift our focus a little bit on the country's strategy itself. As you said, uh, this will be the 17th time Sri Lanka goes to the IMF. And they have put all eggs in the IMF basket, hoping to qualify for more credit again. So what is it now? So this will only enable Sri Lanka to borrow more to repay existing loans. But hasn't Sri Lanka tried that before? So I think uh, there are also questions about the possibilities of in, uh, you know, introducing, say, a wealth tax, uh, expanding universal social security, public spending. But all these are going to be very difficult conversations because... An IMF program is going to give a very sort of definite uh, course for Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka is only counting on that to be more creditworthy. So I think whether it's politically or economically speaking, it's, it's going to be a very, very difficult period for Sri Lanka. And every choice that it makes now is going to determine the pace of its recovery, which experts say may already take about a decade. So um, whether Sri Lanka will go in again, on a path of borrowing heavily to repay loans and similar economic choices? Or will there be reflection, introspection, and possibly a slight shift in its ways is something we have to wait and watch. Right. does look like there are really tough times ahead. I mean, you just spoke about the need actually for a universal welfare package and maybe to cut the wealth tax and the need for the government to actually spend more given the widespread uh, misery in terms of essentials and access to basic food uh, items as well. But at the same time, uh, you have the IMF conditionalities, which may not really work in that direction. They may be looking to impose uh, some kind of austerity regime here. Anyway, we'll come back to this soon, maybe once we know what the IMF uh, outcome is. Thank you so much, Mira, for talking to us. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Sampat. Likewise. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.